0: God's word says before the coming of this faith we were held in custody under the law locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed so the law was our guardian until christ came that we might be justified by faith now that this faith has come we are no longer under a guardian so in christ jesus you are all children of god through faith for all of you who were baptized into christ have clothed yourselves with christ there is neither jew nor gentile neither slave nor free nor is there a male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Hey, did you notice that we got new speakers? Is everybody else just like, wow, the sound quality. If anybody's excited, it's me. Yeah. All right. We got claps already. One minute in. Also, we need a new member of the team. We just need some passing of the peace security to get you guys in your seats for the word, man. It's brutal. The, the scripture, Dan was up here saying, all right, this morning's reading, this morning's reading. You guys didn't even hear him because you were just talking too much. But hey, um, I'm so excited for this morning. We doing all right? We feel good? You look great. It's half the battle. so my mom always says. Um, I, I'm just excited for this morning, and I actually just want to, b- before we pray, I just want to encourage you. Um, it's very easy to just, like, shut down what's actually going on in your life before before church and then try to, like, re-enter it afterwards. And so I'm just going to pray this morning, but I just want you to invite you to bring everything, bring your distraction, bring the stress that you're carrying in your body, um, bring the relational frustration that you're experiencing, and just bring it into His presence even this morning as we pray. And um, let's just see what the Lord would do with us. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning... Um, Amazed at who you are, amazed at who you've been to us. We, um, you, you're so worthy of our worship and our praise, and um, yet you are gentle and kind to us. Um, so we just invite you to come this morning. Would you minister to us? Minister to us as individuals. You know the uniqueness of our life and our situation and what we're experiencing right now. And then I also just ask that you would minister to us as a people, as, a, as the family of God this morning. And we just invite you to come, to come, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts this morning. We don't need more information or more logic, but we, we really just need to encounter and experience, experience you this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, we've been in the book of Galatians, and we're kind of in this little bridge phase where we are, um, we're moving from the first part of the book, we're entering the end of chapter 3. And for all of you, like, practical people who are like, enough. About grace, tell me what to do. You're still going to be frustrated, okay? But we are. We're getting into more of the practical living here as we enter into the second half of Galatians, and I'm gonna pick up here in chapter three, verses twenty-three. So if you have your Bible, it'd be a great morning to just prop that thing open on your lap, and I'm gonna read a little. I'm gonna talk a little, but we're really going to be anchored in the passage this morning. And, and Paul he starts by saying this. He says, "Before the coming of this faith." We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So that's an intriguing phrase, right? The law was our guardian. And when we have to ask the question, like, what does that actually mean? And this word in the, in the original language, in the Greek, it was actually, I'm going to try really hard to say this. Don't, don't feel any pressure to say it, but it's, it, it actually means pedagogos. Yeah, I'm just the one time I'm going to say it, okay? So that's what it means. All right, that's the, that's the Greek word. But really what it means, this is what N.T. Wright says about it. He says the guardian, or the, I'm going to say it one more time, the pedagogos. I just hate saying it. It's, it's, it's a little insecure as I say it, okay? It says that job was to actually get the children to and from school and to make sure that they didn't get in, into any mischief on the way said, this role corresponds loosely to what we would call a babysitter, not the parent or the teacher or the person in charge, but the person in charge for this moment, for this specific purpose. So what Paul is saying here is as we ask the question, and Jeremy alluded to it last week, how do we relate to the law of God? How do we relate to it? And N.T. right? he says this, basically, Paul is saying the law was like our babysitter. It has its purpose, like it has it for a specific time. Right, some of you even here have babysat our kids. And there's basically one role when you babysit our kids. Just keep them alive, right? Like you have three hours. Like just that's the goal. That's kind of the, the, the hope. If you teach them or inform them or make them more like Jesus in the in, that's just icing on the cake. Like I would love that. But the primary purpose is for these like three hours while we're on a date. Like just, just keep our babies alive, right? Like there's a specific purpose for a specific point in time. That's what Paul's saying the law was. And he's saying, So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And then he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So he's saying the law might be a good babysitter, but what is needed is a parent. It's what we've been invited into, grafted into, and it's how we're actually to relate to God, is as a father. And I'll get to that more in a minute. But a lot of times we actually still tend to relate to God as a babysitter, you know. We relate to the, the law as a babysitter, but then we actually also kind of bring God and his character and his nature into this kind of babysitter, divine babysitter type of role in our lives, that he's, he's distant and he makes some rules and some guidelines, but for the most part, his role in my life is just to kind of make sure I don't completely blow myself up in these lived experience that I have. And N.T. Wright, he paraphrases Paul and he says this, you're already an adult, why put yourself back into the care of a babysitter. And that's what we've been talking about again and again and again with this message of grace and the law. And he's saying the law is like a babysitter. And, and here, here's why this is kind of attractive to us, right? Because with the law, with, with rules, with regulations, there comes certainty, doesn't it? It provides this certainty in our lives. And as one psychologist says, Dan, Dan Allender, he says, he says, the more fragmented you are, the more attractive certainty is. The more, or said another way, he says, the more certain you can be, the less fragmented you might feel, right? It makes us feel mature and grown up to follow rules, doesn't it? It's like, I know what I'm doing. Here's the right thing to do. Here's the wrong thing to do. Let me, tell me what I can do to do the right thing again and again and again. Just tell me the rules. And it makes us feel like we're growing, doesn't it? It makes us feel like now I'm maturing. I'm I'm doing the right stuff. And but 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 it's actually almost the opposite, right? Paul, Paul. anybody might know this passage. Okay, Paul Paul says this. It's a, it's a famous one. He says, if there was one time where I'm thinking Paul's like really preaching, it was right here, right? He's like, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And he says this, when I became a man though, I put away my childhood. I put away my childish ways behind me. You know where he says that though? He says that right smack dab in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13. And maybe if you don't even know your Bible, you know 1 Corinthians 13, right? Like that's like if you've been to half of a wedding ceremony, you know somebody read that passage, right? 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage, right? We know it. So just think about this. Paul, right in the middle, he's saying love is kind. Love is patient. Love, it doesn't envy. It doesn't ever fail us. And then he's like, and when I was a child, I thought like a child. You're like, whoa, bro, what happened here? We were just talking about love but there's some deep implications here. right? He's saying that to grow up, to grow spiritually, isn't just to follow the rules better, but it's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. See, what Paul is really saying, he's saying following the rules, that's for children. But love, growing into becoming a person of love, that's for the real Jesus followers. Right? It's like, It's it's like it's like the the, the board game people who just love the rules, you know? They're like open up the new board game, they're like throw the pieces to the side, where's the rule? Where's the rule book, right? I saw some people look at their spouse, like that's you, babe. That's you, right? You love the rules. And it's great, we need the rules. Every game that has ever functioned ever, from board game to sport, like it's nothing without rules. It's it'd be chaos, right? We need the rules. But the point of the game isn't to memorize the rules and participate in the rules, right? It's like going to a soccer game, just like, oops, just make sure I don't step out of bounds. Okay, we're great, right? We're still rolling. We're still playing the game. Am I winning? It's like no one knows. You're just playing by the rules, bro. It's the same way. He's saying it's not about the rules. The rules have a purpose. But the, the invitation, the, the, the point of the game, it's to play the game, right? And we need the rules. We need spiritual disciplines. We need the law of God, but they're all a means to an end. Even the, even the disciplines and the spiritual disciplines are, are a means to an end. It's a means to actually becoming a person who loves God and loves people. They're to form us. It's why when Jesus, when he teaches on the law, he says it's summed up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Even the law itself is all about love right? Can I, can, I, can I teach one practical here from the, from the Ten Commandments, from, from the law, from the Mosaic law, from what Moses teaches, right? Commandment number three, all right? If anybody grew up just like memorizing the Ten Commandments, this is for you. You've been waiting for this moment your whole life. Commandment number three, what does he say? He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So what does that mean? Most of you, you're like, don't cuss. That's what it means, Cam. It means, that's what my parents used to tell me when they said, watch your mouth. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. And it actually doesn't even mean that. It means don't cuss. Watch your mouth, right? Which is kind of why, like, when, when people just, like, first are welcomed into the family of God, they become a Christian, the first thing we always hear is, like, man, I'm just really trying to work on my mouth, trying to work on my language, trying to cuss less, you know? I'm like, man, that's great. I'm so, maybe that's what God is inviting into, but I'm just, I'm just kind of considering maybe the God of the universe the God of creation who saved you and redeemed you, the, the, the primary concern isn't like you switching your I to two O's in a certain word. You know what I mean? Like that's probably deeper than that. But we love rules. We're like, tell me what I'm supposed to do now. And that's actually not even what the passage is teaching. That's actually not what this command is even about. Right? The, the command is to not take God's name, to bear his name, which your name is synonymous with your character, He's saying, don't don't use my name. Take the name of God's name to bear his name, to bear his character, and to live in a way that's not in alignment with his character. Right? It's like when my dad, when I would get refocuses in school, he'd say, Cam, Michaels, don't do that. You're acting out of alignment with who you actually are, with who you're representing. That's what that passage even means. It's, It's actually deeper than that. But a lot of times, man, we just want to stay with the rules. Okay, don't cuss. I can do that. I can try that. I can confess that in my community group. You know, that's easy, right? Let's, it, 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 it's, it's easy to stay in our brain. It's easy to stay up top. But to say, live in alignment with the character of God, isn't that so much more ambiguous? Isn't that so much? Actually, it, it's actually, it feels way harder. Because rules are easy, they're measurable, they're certain. But the good news of Jesus is so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that, and it's so much more beautiful. It's inviting you into a life that's way, way better than just following rules. It's not what Dallas Willard says, the gospel of sin management. That's not what we're here to do. Because to live in the gospel of sin management, it it, it gives us the freedom to live more than just in our heads. And it's because it's in alignment with what Jesus wants. Jesus wants your heart. And so many of us, man, we still live here. My, my mom did daycare growing up, okay? So she did in-house daycare, which was just madness. Like, I think she broke all the rules. We'd have like 15 kids in our house. I'm like, mom, this is not legal, you know? Which also means I grew up on the beauty of fish sticks and pizza rolls and dino nuggets. For all my dino nuggets lovers out there, it's totally unhealthy, but it was the best, you know? I grew up on that daycare food, but something would happen at the end of every single day, right? My mom, my mom, we'd hear a knock on the door. The door would open. One of the kid's parents would come into the room. And what would the, what would the little kid do? They're not like, ah, oh, I just like it here with the babysitter, mom. See ya. No, they'd run to their parent. And they'd be like, mom, dad, dad, dad. They'd run to their parent. Their parent would pick them up. And I've never thought till this week, that's like a beautiful picture of what it means to be invited into following Jesus. It's the the, man, these rules, they had the right space for the right time. The babysitter did their job, but you're invited to life with your parents. You're invited to life with your heavenly father. And it's right in line with what Paul is teaching, right? He says, so the law was our guardian. Cam's mom's babysitting duty did its purpose. Hello. (laughs) You know, and he says, but in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so he's saying, so now in Christ, through Jesus, you're no longer one of the babysitter's kids, but you are a child of God. That's your identity. You've been baptized into Christ, and you've clothed yourself with Christ. And I love that imagery. That's how you get into the family, by the way. It says that you've been baptized into Jesus It's it's why baptism in and about itself is this beautiful picture that we celebrate here. We celebrate that thing like crazy. Because it's this beautiful picture of of your life, your sin, your stains, your error, your wrong, everything you brought to the table being completely and forever washed away by Jesus. That you're clean and blameless and without a blemish in God's sight. That by Jesus' blood on the cross you have been made new that the tallies of all the times you didn't follow the rules have been completely past, present, future, erased by Jesus. And you are dipped into the water and you come out and not only are you washed clean, but now you're clothed with Christ himself. You're clean and you're clothed. And just think about that for a second. Think about your clothes. Like in every moment of every day, most of the time, there is nothing closer to you than your clothes. The closest thing to us is our clothes. And Jesus, on your very worst day, is as close as your own clothes. He's near to you. We're clothed by him. He's close to us. He's the one that protects us. He's our shelter, our hiding place. And even the narrative of Scripture itself, clothing is even more than that. It's, it, it's meant to be a picture of God covering our shame. To be clothed in Jesus literally means to hide our shame underneath the clothing and the righteousness and the goodness and the resume of Jesus. Even in the very origin of the story, when we look at, at the first scene in the Scriptures, we see Adam and Eve trusting their own ways, their own thoughts, their own ideas. They run away from God. They have this realization that they're naked, and now they're ashamed of who they are and what they've done. And what does God do? He covers them. He provides them clothing, and that's the, that's the imagery this is pulling on. It's saying you're clothed in Jesus, that your righteousness is not your own, but you're entered, you, you enter into an entirely new identity, that you've been cleansed by Jesus, and now you're clothed by him. And in a real sense, you are set free from rule-keeping. We're given a new identity that entirely changes the way that we relate to God. Paul says you're under a new guardian. You're under a new way of life. You are a child of God. And so let me just recap by saying this. God is not meant to be related to as a babysitter, but as a father, as a good parent. And for some of us, that brings up a little bit of a little bit of squirminess on the inside, right? Makes us ask the question like, who is God to you? How do you actually see him? And we know he's a father. There's probably not a person in you who has not prayed at some point in time and referred to God as their father. You've been in a football locker room or in some kind of prayer meeting where you're like, our father who art in heaven. We know that he's our father. Like there's an intellectual understanding that God is our father. But oftentimes there's this baggage that we bring or there's some kind of thing that has broken the way that we actually relate to him as our dad. It's our own experience. I just want to even acknowledge there's people in the room here who, who anytime the fatherhood of God is brought up, there is, there is just turmoil on the inside, unmet expectations, unrealized dreams of being a parent, experiences with your own parents, the lack thereof, the, the absence of your father, the absence of your dad, that you cannot help but interpret the scriptures and bring that into the scriptures. And what we tend to do then is we superimpose our thoughts, our experiences of what God is like and how he should be and how he acts and how he responds to me with our own thoughts and our own ideas. And we need to hear the truth about who God is this morning, that what it actually means for him to be a father. Brendan Manning, he says it this way: he says, quit projecting onto him your own feelings about yourself. Because at this moment, whether you feel it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are in a safe place. You're in a safe place. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer in your shame. You're no longer to operate in fear or approach his throne fearful, but with confidence, knowing that you are a son or a daughter. Even when we think of Jesus as our king, we've said this before, but you know who gets to, you know who gets to wake up the king in the middle of the night? You know who gets to come and request the king's attention? Only one type of person, his son or his daughter. That's it, right? And he's saying, this is the relationship that you have as you approach God's throne. As his son or his daughter, nothing less. It's what the scriptures pull on at the end. It says that you are an heir to the promise of Abraham. And even in some ways, like the the ESV says that you're all sons of God. And this, the NIV, it says that we're all children of God, which is, which is great because it's including everyone, that they're not just sons, but it's this inclusive language. But even what it's really meaning here, what Paul is really saying when he says the sons of God is saying that, that in this culture, in this context, you would have been the heir to the throne if you were the son. And he's saying, women, men alike, you are invited to be the heir to the throne. You are the first, you're the first voice that he hears when you come to him in prayer. You relate to God as a son. And it's how Jesus teaches us to pray. He, he starts with, when, when, they, when, when, when the disciples are so overwhelmed by his prayer life, that they're like, yo, teach us to do that. And the way he starts, we just hear it, and we're like, yeah, I know that. But you have to understand, at the, at the hearers of the time, it would have been scandalous the way he responded. He said, our Father in heaven. When Jesus prayed, he called God Father, or, or translated Abba, And that was an absolute showstopper. It was scandalous. It was the sort of thing that did not belong anywhere in the temple at all, much less out of the mouth of a rabbi or a teacher of the time. The Greeks didn't even actually have a term for Abba because no one would even address their own father with that much intimacy, let alone God. Jesus, he spoke to Yahweh with such familiarity that we actually can't even translate it. Right, one German theologian, he says this, there is not a single example of the use Abba as an address to God in the whole Jewish literature. And Jeremy will touch more on this next week, but, but even this word for father that the scriptures use, Abba, it's, it's, it's meant to be like a little kid saying, Papa or Dada. It's like when the one-year-old or the two-year-old runs up to their dad and they, they just say, Dada, 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 dad, you know? Like I think about that with my own one-year-old, I'm like, bro, you don't even know my name, you know? Like, he just runs to me like, Dad. I'm like, dude, you don't know my name. You don't know what I do. You don't know anything about me. <laughs> like, talk about theology. I'm like, bro. He's like, Dad, 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 Dad. I'm like, bro, it's too Dad, Dad, Dad. Like, you don't need another one, you know? But he just runs to me. It's, it's, it, but it's this instinctual thing that we have inside of us to run to our dad, to run to our father, to say, Dad, Dad, pick me up. Hold me. I need you. And it's how Jesus taught us to pray, and it's what Paul is trying to recenter us to. God's not a babysitter trying to tell you what you should and shouldn't and should do. He's a father who wants to embrace you. He's a, when, when Jesus explains the father, he says to ask, seek, and knock, and then he compares this, this father in heaven to an over-eager dad who can't wait to give his kids the Christmas gifts on, on Christmas morning. He says he's a dad who waits and looks and searches for his prodigal kid to return home. And then just the thought of him taking one step back, he runs to him, hugs him, embraces him, kisses him. The nearness, the closeness of the father He's not holding him at a distance, but he draws him close. It's the heart of who the scriptures teach that God actually is. And maybe this morning what we really need is a rediscovery of the Father's heart. Right? We can't move past it. We don't graduate from it. And without it, all we are is just people who are trying to follow the rules. Trying to see God as this divine babysitter in our life who tells us what we should do, but isn't actually interested in all that our lives actually entail. And so even this morning, one practical, man, a a great prayer to pray is to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't know the Father the way that you know the Father. I don't experience him like the way that you talk about him. And sensing that gap and asking, saying, show me the Father. Show me his heart. Reveal the Father to me. Our, our, Our very lives and our own joy, it depends on this. And it depends on our experience and knowledge of the Father's love for us. Henry Nowen says this about the joy of Jesus. He says the joy of Jesus is a joy that is born out of ongoing intimacy with his Father. Joy that flows from communion with his Father. Joy springs from Jesus, his intimate belonging to his Father. Jesus says you might leave me, everybody might forget about me, but the Father will never leave me. He is faithful and he will always be with me. It's who he is this morning. And it's an absolute wrestle and battle to not superimpose our own thoughts and feelings on God, but allow the scriptures, right? And learning to understand when when he says, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. The scandalous love of God as our Father, it does not make sense. And it's something that sometimes we just have to lean into and embrace and ask the Holy Spirit to continue to reveal the Father's heart for us. And it's only that radical understanding and experience of the Father's love for you that will actually allow you to grow up into love. That's what Paul's teaching here. Rules are measurable, but actually experiencing the love of God is the only thing that fuels us into becoming people of love, right? There's this story in Luke chapter 10. Some of you probably know it, parable of the Good Samaritan, you know? But this man approaches Jesus and, and he asks him, he says, he has he has a question. He has a very practical question to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? He sees this law as a babysitter. He's like, okay, tell me the, what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. Give me some structure to my life. And Jesus says, well, have you read the law? What do you, what do you think? Classic Jesus turning the question back on him. And the guy, the guy goes, yeah, well, he actually gets it right. He says, well, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's right, just do that. And this is where we meet, right? This is where we enter ourselves into the story, because the guy says, well, I get that, you know, but, and he wants a practical, he wants a principle, he wants something to do, and he says, well, who, who is my neighbor? What, give, me, give me more, can I get a little bit more, what's, what's, who, is my, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, he, he tells him a story, which Jesus is always doing, by the way, and here, one of the reasons why Jesus always tells us because we want we want logical quick fix answers to alleviate the questions in our mind but Jesus is always telling stories to try to redirect it down from our heads to our hearts because stories and narrative engage our hearts and our emotions and that's what's challenging about this whole thing by the way rules can stay up in our head practicals principles can stay in our head and they're not bad they're good but Jesus tells a story to get to our heart and he tells this story And he says, there's this man, you know, he gets beaten up, he's attacked, he's robbed, and he's left on the side of the road. And he says, the religious people of the day, the the Levites, the priests, they see the man on the side of the road, they just keep walking by. The people who follow the law, the people who see the law as a babysitter, they're they're thinking, I don't know if this is the right thing or the wrong thing. You know, I don't know, so I'm just going to kind of keep going. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to stay focused on this. And then he says this, "A, a Samaritan Right, and right when he would say the word Samaritan, this guy would think, oh, whoa, a Samaritan? Because the man asking this question would, know I don't relate with those people. I don't cross cultures like that. I don't do that. But he says the Samaritan walks by and he takes care of the guy on the side of the road. He picks him up. He covers whatever he needs. He, he takes him to a hotel room, leaves his credit card, says, hey, charge whatever it, whatever it takes. I'll be back in a week to take care of him to see what he needs. But can you imagine this guy's response? He's like, "Ah, oh, bro, I was just looking for a quick answer. Who's my neighbor? Like, just tell me. Like or just tell me what, what am I practically supposed to do? Like study more Torah, memorize this, memorize that. He's like, nah. <laughs> Let me tell you a story of what it looks like to love people. And this is where it actually comes together here at the end of the passage. Because notice Paul's language here. And there are some I statements, but most of the statements are you all or we. It's community, collective language. And so what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to say, you are to experience God as your own father in such a way that transforms the way that you see people. And when we look for practicals, he's saying, no, here's the bigger picture of what's happening here. You're invited into an entire family. He's saying once you learn to sit in your identity as a child of God, experience it not just with your mind but with your heart, once you learn to just stop living by the rules, our view of people is actually radically transformed. right? We've been saved and redeemed into an entirely new family where compassion and love for one another is the thing. Jesus even said this. He said, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by how you love one another. And it's meant to be a family kind of love. That's how we're to relate to people that's what he says here he says so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith for all of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ and then he says this there is neither Jew nor Gentile slave nor free male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed heirs according to the promise it's a family kind of love And here underneath this love and provision of our good Father, we are one family. It doesn't diminish our differences, but it actually sets us free to love and embrace our differences. He's saying that the life as sons and daughters is the only hope we have to really actually do that. It's the power of the gospel, the power of living under the fatherhood of God that sets us free. And it's the effect of what Jesus did on the cross, right? Ephesians 2 says this, For he himself is our peace who has made the, true, the two groups one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose, the purpose of Jesus, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, one new family, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He made peace on the cross, a supernatural peace that transcends our logic. His purpose was to create a new family, a new humanity. And oftentimes when we talk about the good news of Jesus, it is absolutely individualistic that he saved you, that he's redeemed you. It's definitely not less than that, but it's also more than that. And some of it is our own culture and how we interpret things. But in other cultures, the the, the major message of the gospel is that you are invited into a new family. The family of God, it's not just individual, but it has this collective familial feel to it. It's the power of the gospel that allows, uh, that, that breaks down the walls of the hostility. And Paul even pulls on some of these specific threads that are still obviously in our own culture. He says the cultural barriers, Jews nor Greeks, they are they're, they're one now. And I love that he doesn't just diminish it. He's not just like, we're all, one, we're all one culture, we're all one ethnicity, we're all one whatever, right? He says he still has the distinctives. See, because, because in, in a real way, race is a human construct, right? Race is actually a social construct. It's something that we've constructed. It's, it's we are actually one race. That's what he's tying us back into. Like when you take everything away, when you look at the DNA of, human, of humanity, we, are, we all have basically everything in common. But culture, ethnicity is a God-given blessing, and to diminish that is actually to diminish the beauty of God's people, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but even in Revelation, when it says that we all come together, uh, there's going to be people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. The word nation there is actually translated ethnos or ethnicity, that we are one family multi, that is multicultural, multiethnic, and it's beautiful. But underneath it all, there's this shared identity that we have as we are children of the living God. And it's only by embracing that that we actually are free to love these other, the, love the other, to love the outsider, to love those who, who don't look like and feel like and live like us. It breaks down the hostility of, of cultural barriers and gender barriers. But the real beauty is not just the conformity or uniformity, but it's unity. And unity is being able to be who God made you to be together. But all of this is fueled by an experience and a knowledge of the Father's heart for us. That unless we see it as a real family underneath the good fatherhood of God, none of this makes sense. Then I'm looking for practicals and my heart's unengaged. And here's mostly why, because insecurity leads to comparison or judgment, and you and and you and you're not allowed to embrace the other, but you're comparing or you're judging. But security, confidence in the Father's heart for you, it's the only thing that can really set you free to love people. It's the only thing that can really set us free. And so here's how I want to close this morning. I, I've been captivated. First John chapter 5, he, he ends, the, the, the apostle, the disciple John, he ends his, his letter in 1 John with this phrase. He says, I write all of these things to you that you might know the eternal life that you have. And for some of us, there's, there's this gap between our experience and what the scriptures are teaching. So I actually, I, I want to lean into this this morning. I, I want to pray that prayer that we talked about at the beginning. Jesus, we want to know the Father like you know the Father. We want to know him experientially, informationally, but we need to know the Father's heart. It's the thing that launches us into a life of love, the invitation that Paul has for us. So if you would, would you just open your hands and let's pray as we close. Father, I just want to name our own struggles to believe who you are. That some of us are, there are experiential barriers, there are um, wounds that we bring to the table, and I just want to ask Holy Spirit that you would reveal the Father to us as a church, that you would change the way that we see ourselves and that you would change the way that we see people. Jesus, we want to know the Father the way that you know the Father. And so we just ask that you would reveal the Father's heart to us, even this morning. We can teach about it, we can talk about it, but unless your Spirit reveals his face and his heart to us, we've got nothing. So would you do that, even as we worship and as we pray this morning? And then would you send us as people to love people? Would we not be caught up in what's the right thing to do, the good thing, but, but just to be overwhelmed by our love for humanity, our love for your sons and daughters, your creation, your people. And we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.